0: Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim, Will Foxley and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Today's show is sponsored by Interpop. Just a reminder, CoinDesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0. I'm Will Foxley, markets reporter for Coindesk. And I'm joined today by my two show co-hosts, Coindesk research associate, Christine
2: Kim, and Ben Edgington, lead product owner of Deku at ConsenSys. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to be covering the latest technical, community and markets-related developments around Ethereum 2. Last week, we discussed Vitalik Buterin's proposed quick merge idea, to speed up Ethereum's transition to proof-of-stake, its merits, and its drawbacks.
3: This week, we're going to get started by talking about some of the community developments of the Ethereum one chain and its DApp ecosystem that has important implications for what's continuing to happen with Ethereum 2.0 development. Oh, and by the way, this is Christine. So yes, hi, everyone. (laughs) Will, (laughs) going to throw it back to you. What have you got for us today?
1: We got more merge. So- Yeah, last week we did talk about the merge, but we talked a little bit more of the technical part. This week, I want to get more into the community aspects of it, particularly because last week was the all-core developers call. And they kind of put a loose timeline together for what a merge would look like by the end of year. And I'm really excited that Ben is with us because he did a great op-ed for the block back in November, I think, which kind of spelled out some of the goals for ETH2 going into 2021. Of course, the beacon chain launched in December, and that was the, probably the biggest event for ETH2, maybe since like the Casper papers came out, I don't know. But this year, there's still a lot of expectations for what's going to happen for ETH2 and how the chain's going to develop and is the merge going to happen? Uh, What is the implications for EIP-1559 and DeFi? So there's a lot to dig into, but we're going to talk first about what this rough roadmap looks like. Ben, were you on that call last week?
2: I was listening in to the call. I didn't appear in person, but yeah, I was following along and we are seeing a convergence between what's happening in the ETH2 world and what's happening in the ETH1 world. They have to come together at some point and and it's starting to happen.
1: Really is starting to happen. And one thing that's also starting to change is Danny Ryan is changing definitions on us again, but for a good reason. So really quick. ETH2 and ETH1 has kind of been like the de facto name for the grand Ethereum overhaul moving from proof of work to proof of stake for, I'd say two or three years plus, at least it was like ETH1X has kind of been the term du jour for the Ethereum proof of work chain. And now that's kind of going by the name of ETH POW, ETH proof of work. And then I think everyone else is just calling ETH2 the beacon chain, which I don't know, Ben, maybe you can correct me on that, but that's kind of what I've seen it as.
2: Yes, yes, So This is uh, one of my uh, topics uh, for this week I want to discuss with you all is naming, right? It's our favorite <laughs> favorite subject, naming things. So here's a question. When was the term Ethereum 2 first used? You know your Ethereum history, right? What's Uh-oh. the first occurrence of the name Ethereum 2 in uh, Ethereum's history? Christine better know. She has been reporting on this longer than I have.
3: Uh, I don't know, but I'm going to take a shot in the dark. Was it DevCon, like October 2018?
2: It wasn't. <laughs> I, <will. laughs> oh. I haven't been around long enough to know the answer to this. No, it's really interesting. Vitalik used the Ethereum 2 name in a post on Hacker News uh, in April 2014. Wow. So Ethereum 2 goes uh, kind of all the way back to uh, before the origins of, of Ethereum as, as a concept. Now it's we, we've adopted it. For this beacon chain and the sharding and all of that kind of stuff, but it's now going away again. Danny's changing the game. He's taken over. So
1: kind of moving back to the topic at hand, the quick merge was a proposal issued by Vitalik like two weeks ago. Not really a proposal as much as just like an idea, like a loose idea. And that was based on even more research that was published first back in November from Consensus and the Ethereum Foundation, just some researchers there for the Catalyst protocol, which is basically like mushing Geth, which is the Ethereum proof of work software, and the beacon chain together. So then we can just have Ethereum proof of stake much quicker. And Vitalik, of course, in that document kind of spelled out like what needs to change, what does not need to change. Pretty slim and easy to uh, make work. And we wrote about that on valid points if you want to go check that out. But here I want to talk about kind of the timeline because a lot of analysts I talk to, particularly in mainstream finance, are really wondering when proof of stake is going to happen because there's so many industries revolving around Ethereum proof of work and the proof of stake timeline is all over the place. So, Ben, I want to ask you what you think about the timeline and how these timeline changes are communicated to the outside world.
2: Yeah, you're totally right. It has been a moving target and has generally been moving forward in the roadmap, the point at which we get Ethereum one onto proof of stake. And there are a couple of drivers of this as we've discussed in the past, uh, one of which is a sort of minor reaction to EIP 1559 and the sort of uh, minor revolt that's been threatened, I think has focused minds to really to take the proof of work miners out of the decision-making governance loop as early as, as possible. The other thing is a sort of embarrassment over um, NFTs for the arts community are pushing back a lot on the energy use of the proof of work networks when when it comes to NFTs and and all of that world. So these are sort of focused minds. And a couple of proposals have come in that that would enable us to do the merge, the getting ETH1 onto proof of stake, uh, really in very quick time. We have a proof of concept client already. We have a spec that's minimal and would get us there. And in principle, we could could roll it out in in a few months. Now in practice, that's not gonna happen because uh, we have to do a lot of testing and we have to do a lot of governance stuff around making sure everybody in the community is ready and that we're not gonna break anything and that all the value that's on the ETH1 chain is going to be seamlessly carried over after this this much. And that just takes time. And that's a huge effort of auditing and scrutinizing and testing the the whole thing. So that's really the rate limiting step at the moment is just convincing everybody that this is going to work and fitting it into the ETH1 sort of governance roadmap, the plan of hard forks that are coming up for ETH1.
1: Yeah, so I guess I'll jump in there again. I think from what I saw last week in the call and some notes floating around was that uh, there's at least. Two more hard forks in the near future. We have the London hard fork this July, which as of right now will only include EIP 1559, and then a change to the difficulty bomb, which is a whole other topic. We could get into some date. <laughs> and then Shanghai would be the next hard fork likely to include a merge, or at least talked about to include a merge. It's kind of Unfair to speculate right now. I would say to say that it would be included or not. At least I didn't see that from the meeting, and uh, we'll only see it kind of going forward if if consensus, rough consensus out there through various Ethereum communities continues to build up and desire for the merge to happen. Then I bet it could be considered uh, inclusion for Shanghai, which would probably come at the end of the year. I want to boot a question over to Christine, as you've obviously you're one of the oldest Ethereum reporters. at continuously at this point, I feel like I think you've been riding on the on Ethereum since 2018 or so, which puts you in an upper echelon of people. From a community standpoint, how do you view this whole change and how do you view this in regards to other Ethereum community developments in the past, like contentious ones, maybe like ProgPow or I guess ProgPow is the only one I can think of that's really contentious. (laughs)
3: Yeah. I think that there's a lot more support definitely for the transition to proof of stake than there was for say uh a hard fork to change Ethereum's mining algorithm to fork off Ethereum ASICs from the network, which is what ProgPow was. For everybody who's listening who, yeah, kind of missed that whole drama, ProgPow was engineered, designed to make the mining algorithm of Ethereum harder for specialized mining devices to be created. And it was supposed to make mining more equitable, but it never ultimately got implemented uh, for lack of community consensus and support. For Ethereum 2.0, it's a lot different. I mean, as Ben pointed out, since 2014, proof of stake was always the ultimate goal for Ethereum. I do wonder if Ethereum miners are going to fork and continue on with the Ethereum proof of work chain once the transition happens. I have no doubt that Ethereum will transition to proof of stake, but I do wonder if miners will maybe switch to Ethereum Classic, which is another proof of work version of Ethereum that's been ongoing since what, like 2016. In terms of community, like uh, community rifts and, and dissension and, and kind of conflict, the biggest thing moving forward will definitely be to see how people respond to the trade offs that people are making in order for Ethereum 2.0 to happen more quickly. So in order for the transition to happen by the end of this year, that means potentially we're not going to get certain scalability benefits that we thought we were going to get through the merge to proof of stake. When it comes to efficiency gains, instead of Ethereum becoming one of the shards of the Ethereum 2.0 network, you're building a bridge, so maybe it makes things more inefficient in terms of data transfers, like how things are are secured and verified on the Ethereum blockchain. I think as testing happens, as more debate and discussion happens, those trade-offs will become a lot more points of discussion. I think that those things will will come to light more clearly over the next couple months as this proposal starts to become more seriously considered.
1: As I understand it from some Ethereum classic reporting I've done in the past, a lot of Ethereum miners do plan to move over to Ethereum classic when proof of stake comes. Like that is just an expectation and it's kind of a way to keep gaining revenue and when proof of stake happens, it's like a buffer, I guess, because like I said earlier, we don't really know when the move to proof of stake is going to happen. It could be in six months, it could be in 18 months to a year, just kind of depends at this point what consensus is like for that project.
0: Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between, they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit HelloInterpop.io to learn more. That's HelloInterpop.io to learn more.
1: I want to toss it. Over to Ben for some uh, tech updates. I stomped on your topic earlier with the naming
2: thing. <laughs> Sorry for that. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Just quickly on the signaling to minus thing. I, I think momentum for moving to proof of stake is building to irresistible levels at the moment. I think, you know, this is going to happen. It's going to happen soon. But there is a recognition that, to be fair to miners, so that they're not making big investments based on unknowns and, and so on, that we will signal soon an earliest date for the proof of state transition. Uh, and they will know to a degree where they stand on this and can make other plans accordingly. So yeah, nobody wants to kind of switch it off by surprise overnight and shock uh, everybody. So it will be, it will be handled uh, with communication and signaling uh, in due course. Yeah, naming things. It's not just about naming things. It's about how the Ethereum roadmap has kind of evolved over the the years. So as you mentioned, uh, there's this kind of push from the Ethereum Foundation, Danny Ryan in particular, who is eager to rename various components of the system and, and move away really from this Ethereum 2 naming, which is a problem for us, right? You know, I'm going to have to uh, uh, rename my... Uh, my newsletter. We're going to have to rename this podcast, right? I mean, (laughs) what are we going to do? (laughs) I think Ethereum 2 kind of will exist, but as a smaller concept within a bigger whole. So the way it's worked over the years has been really interesting. So Vitalik proposed this Ethereum 2 concept back in 2014, which is incredible. Before Ethereum had even started, he was thinking about what does the next generation look like? And Ethereum 2 at that point was like a step change. He envisaged a step change with new cryptography a completely new chain basically which was ethereum plus plus scalable and so forth in 2015 it seems like they the the community moved away from that uh concept and and moved to a more um incremental update process so we had this famous roadmap with frontier homestead metropolis serenity all being incremental updates to the ethereum chain And that went pretty well. It sort of delivered Metropolis in early 2019. Serenity was just the move to proof of stake. And there were some proof of concept implementations of that. But in mid-2018, we realized that that wasn't going to work. So we we actually went back to Vitalik's original idea and built a whole new chain. That was the plan. So Ethereum 2.0, that's what we called it. And we started building this beacon chain. And we were planning this phase one sharding this phase two execution engines and all this kind of thing, all separate from Ethereum 1. And then Ethereum 1 would be kind of like a legacy thing that we imported at some stage onto this chain. And then it all changed again. (laughs) We've kind of gone back to this incremental update idea where we take Ethereum 1 as it is and we plug in proof of stake and then we plug in sharding and then we plug in uh, rollups and so on. And it just becomes a much more incremental roadmap and, and path forward. So that's kind of what's behind the naming change. It's not just about, you know, changing names for the sake of it. It's about saying we're not doing a new chain anymore. This is not no longer the plan. We are upgrading the existing chain. And so talking about Ethereum 2 just kind of confuses people. You know, is it a new coin? Do I need a new wallet? If I'm just holding, you know, do I need to do something or will it be fine? And so that's it
3: about the naming as in changing Ethereum 2.0 to calling it the beacon chain or proof of stake. Because if, if that's what we're talking about here, I think it's completely unnecessary. The name of the beacon chain cannot replace Ethereum 2.0 because the beacon chain does actually specifically refer to one part of the Ethereum 2.0 network. If shards do come in at some point, you're going to need to be able to differentiate between what are the shard chains and what is the beacon chain. So I don't actually see Ethereum 2.0 and the Beacon Chain as, as transferable. And then when it comes to proof of stake, Ethereum's transition to proof of stake. I think given the quick merge proposal, you could argue now that the Ethereum 2.0 upgrade is has been reduced down to simply moving Ethereum from proof of work to proof of stake. But the history of Ethereum 2.0, that term, it did encompass a lot more. And going back to what Will had briefly mentioned about Casper, Casper was what Vitalik and I think it was Vlad Zamfir, another old name in the Ethereum community, they were thinking about ways in which Ethereum could upgrade to a proof-of-stake protocol and they had dubbed their proof-of-stake protocol Casper. There are a lot of other proof-of-stake protocols out there, a lot of other proof-of-stake blockchains. So the name Casper was a way to differentiate their proposal, their protocol for Ethereum 2.0. So I don't think beacon chain, I don't think proof of stake is a sufficient (laughs) terminology for what Ethereum's particular brand of this code update, in my opinion.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the, the terminology that Danny is proposing is that we call the beacon chain side of stuff, the consensus layer. And we call the Ethereum 1 side of stuff, you know, the transactions and smart contracts and all that, we call that the application layer. And so those are the of you know, two sides, kind of slightly less exciting, but it does make a nice kind of clean distinction between the two. And then we can talk about consensus layer and application layer without overloading it with this kind of Ethereum 2 terminology, which just means different things to different people, right? And I think that's the difficulty of it. I'm not sure I'm a fan yet. I think I'll keep using the ETH2 thing. I'll keep pushing out what's new in ETH2 every couple of weeks until... <laughs> the uh, rhyme is too good. It's Gotta too good. It. But that's where we are. But I thought that was an interesting insight into how the sort of roadmap has kind of flip-flopped a bit from this concept of doing a big upgrade to the whole thing in a big bang versus this sort of incremental thing. And we're back to the incremental, which is interesting.
3: How much power naming things has on how people understand the upgrade? If you name a particular part of Ethereum, introduce a particular proposal for Ethereum, and it just sticks, like it resonates with a lot of people, it goes on to kind of shape how people understand Ethereum's protocol. Mm. Even if the name itself was originally targeted towards one specific area of Ethereum development, it can go on to shape people's perception of Ethereum as a whole, like as an entire network which is really what I think happened with names like Casper, Sharding, when those were merged, Shasper, and then (laughs) moving on to like, we're going to go back to Serenity, we're going to move this to Mm. Ethereum 2.0, like all that complexity. It was much more than just, let me name this proposal I'm about to share. These names started to actually embed like a particular perception of how the Ethereum 2.0 upgrade should be handled.
2: And it's often said that if, prog pal had a different name (laughs) less kind of um discontinuous name if it were just called you know upgrade to ethash ethash 2 or something it might have gone through (laughs) um (laughs) but um 2.0 yeah
1: i think my two cents is if you keep changing names then you necessarily have to spend time on branding which does matter for decentralized communities i think that's a great point christine's bringing up that matters a lot And it just also gives a lot more FUD ammunition to people who are against ETH2 or against Ethereum. like, oh, they're changing the roadmap again. Well, it's like, no. It's just kind of making things more clear for the nominal person keeping track of the Ethereum story. That's the way it it works in
2: cryptocurrency land. Right, well, that's all I've got this week. Uh, So, Christine, why don't you give us a markets update?
3: I'm so glad we have the time for this. I always worry that... My section will not be included in the episode because we won't have time. But this is great. Um, so, what I wanted to talk about today is the impact of proof of stake on the market value of ETH over the long term. Because I got this email from one of our our listeners, one of our avid CoinDesk readers. I won't say his or her particular name, but this email had argued that because it won't take as much computational energy to produce ETH on the proof-of-stake blockchain, the value of ETH over the long term will go down. As in, if you have a particular commodity or a particular financial asset that you know is very difficult to get the value of it, will presumably increase over time, given that demand stays constant. So if there's high demand, but low supply, then you know, this is good for the price of the, of the asset appreciating over time. Um, and of course, you know when we're, we're talking about this, there is the argument that no, proof of stake will not be bad for the market value of ETH over time, because even though it's cheaper to produce the native cryptocurrency of Ethereum, which is Ether, It won't impact the market value of ETH negatively because there's less ETH being issued on an annual basis across the protocol. So right now we've got this fixed issuance rate, which is what, like two ETH gets created per block, two ETH per block in the proof of stakes system. It won't be two ETH per block. It'll be a particular percentage of the total amount of ETH staked. And that comes out to like a near 0% inflation. Great. So that's one argument saying that no, like proof of stake won't be bad for the market value of ETH over the long term. On the flip side, uh, the whole point of the proof of stake upgrade, or at least part of it, is that it should make Ethereum over the long term more scalable and more efficient to use. So not only will the cost of maintaining the network be low over time, hopefully, even when there's a lot of people using proof of stake, the aim and the goal is that transaction fees will still be affordable, that we won't see as many spikes in transaction fees as we've been seeing due to the DeFi hype, due to the NFT craze. Like moving forward, I think the vision for Ethereum is that a lot of people could be using the network, but the costs of the network will still still be manageable. So while I don't think that Ethereum has very many monetary policies like Bitcoin that helps boost its price over time, like having a fixed coin supply limit or uh, sticking with a very computationally intensive consensus protocol like proof of work. Even though Ethereum is moving away from all those things, doesn't have any of those things. One of the goals is that Ether will never be very expensive. Hopefully that using the network, using the crypto asset, will always be a very low cost action for people. Uh, So the more that I thought about this question, like initially I was like, no way, you know, why would proof of stake be bad for the market value of ETH? The more that I thought about it, the more that I was like, well, actually, I think one of the main aims is that proof of stake helps maintain the market value of ETH, like helps it be low. Is one of the thought patterns, one of the rabbit holes that I went down. I mean, Will and Ben, when you think about this and and think about the logic that I just explained for why proof of stake might not, at least it won't increase the market value of ETH over the long term, does that make sense to you? Like, does this come off as more like FUD (laughs) sounding? And for those of our listeners, FUD is basically an acronym for FEAR. Unrest and depression, or something like that. I'm sure I'm, I'm using the terms wrong, but it, yeah, it's it basically means like
1: depression. Okay, sure.
3: Is it depression or it's, despair?
1: It's fear, yeah. uncertainty, and doubt. Oh. so much more sinister. <laughs> depression.
3: Depression. Oh, that's hilarious. Okay, well, yes. Well, thank you for the fact check there. Um, but yeah, so what do you think about that logic of proof of stake? Because originally, I really was to this question like, no, it's not. It's not bad for the market value of ETH. But at the same time, it it kind of is.
2: <laughs> I, I'm a simple man, Christina. I, I see three <laughs> things at work um, when it comes to price. You got uh, supply, you got demand, and you got speculation. And in the long run, supply and demand will will rule, and it will just the price will be a balance between supply of ether versus demand for ether. In the short term, I'm practically certain that the majority of valuation of all the coins is is driven by speculation. About that future supply and demand situation. So, when it comes to supply and demand, you're quite right that proof of stake reduces supply, so it should increase price overall. You know, economics being rational, and I expect demand to increase as well as the network gets more more use and as we've got more capacity and we're able to uh, support more. So you got reduced supply, uh, you got high demand, and number go up. But uh, that's the Hence the speculation today, but uh, yeah. So that's my simple take uh, on it. And I think this energy use thing is is a red herring. It, I don't think it's um, proof of work. Advocates talk about uh, actually generating value by burning electricity. I think this is nonsense.
1: Yeah, uh, I will. I agree with Ben here. This sounds like a lot like the labor theory of value, which has just been disproven over and over again. Like. Just because you're spending so much energy on a block and money on a block doesn't give the block intrinsic value. It just means that someone's willing to pay for that consumption of that energy or putting something into that block. And so I think when we talk about any sort of blockchain, the value is derived from packaging transactions into that block. So I think you're onto something, Christine, in my opinion, with the ETH2 making block space necessarily cheaper because... At some point with sharding and all the other widgets and gizmos going in, you should be able to package more transactions in the blockchain itself with more transactions per second, especially with like roll-ups. I think the upper bound they're looking at is like 100,000 transactions per second once sharding and the beacon chain and roll-ups are all there. But I don't know if that's going to have like a downward pressure and upward pressure on the price of Ether. I think that question comes down to how much does the world in the financial world itself, value block space on Ethereum versus other chains versus non-blockchain projects also. Because five years, everyone might think that blockchains don't matter and we don't really need them at all. And Bitcoin could die and Ethereum could die. And that's just how you know markets come to product. They grow and they die. But on the other hand, they could be bigger than ever. People want the demand for block space is huge.
3: Now that's depression. That sounds. no, I see your point. And I think that it's interesting that as hard as Ethereum 2.0 developers and Ethereum developers try to make Ethereum cost-effective, more efficient, using less energy, make using the network more cheaper for people it really does come down to this long-term bet and this understanding that even with that kind of efficiency gain, like even with transaction fees being cheaper, there's still gonna be so much demand on like a global level that all of those efficiency gains will be worth it, like will be maximized. So right now with like block limits on Ethereum, there's only a certain amount of transactions that can go into every block. And Ethereum for the past like couple of years, it's been hitting those block limits consistently. Like we've had to raise the block limit a couple times because of just how much demand there is. So it does seem like the long-term bet is that, that there will never come a point where there's all this technology, like all this space, all this unused potential of Ethereum, that that potential of Ethereum will Soon quickly be realized, so long as that potential is gained. Like, so long as Ethereum 2.0 does fulfill its promises, the added potential of the network will very quickly be overtaken with decentralized applications, with DeFi, with NFTs. But it's a long term bet for sure. And I do think that a lot of people who use ETH today have a tendency slightly to think of it a little bit like monopoly money, almost like money that you throw away in big chunks and not really consider like the dollar value of it. And I, I think about this because of certain NFT art pieces that have been burned for like $50,000. So like the Lindsay Lohan NFT, there was a, a lightning token that she had created in an artwork. And and ultimately the owner of, of the piece bought it for something like 30 ETH, which was like $50,000 and then proceeded to just burn that asset out of circulation. And very recently there was um, an, an, another like token NFT of Jack Dorsey's, who's the CEO of Twitter, his like first ever tweet. And that apparently is trending for something around $2.5 million. And while the dollar value of that is really big, I think these ETH whales are really just throwing out like 50,000 ETH, like 1,000 ETH large amounts of ETH to get something that they think is something maybe of more stable or long lasting value. I think, I think that's also interesting that right now, at least, the way ETH is being spent, it looks to me like people are really spending it like it's game money, like almost like buying a property on like a Monopoly board game or something.
2: Yeah, there are definitely some uh, crazy whales around. And I think partly it's that the high gas prices at the moment have uh, priced out a lot of people who just want to use the network for ordinary things. Um, you know, we've got about 100 gig away per gas price at the moment. I would rather 100x the capacity and everybody doing 100 times more transactions at one gig away per gas. That's the end vision. You know, it's never been intended to be a network for Wales, uh, that the end goal for Ethereum is to you know transform the economy of the world, to bring in the uh, bank, the unbanked, as it were, and uh, really to reach people who are excluded from current financial systems. So yeah, it's kind of a bit saddening to me to see the craziness that you uh, the, that you describe, Christine. I look forward to the day when we have the capacity and you know the layer two solutions and uh, all of those um, good things that, that that make transactions available enough and cheap enough that, that we can really you know reach the globe and and achieve the um, ideological end goal of ethereum which is she's which is very much not not what you described just now not a lindsay lohan fan i take it um
1: <laughs> well i think that brings us kind of to the close here right so i want to thank everyone for tuning in for another episode of mapping out eth 2.0 or as ben calls it math 2. what did you say zero or 2. Point? <laughs> you always get me when you say that uh ben and i will be back next Thursday for more insights on proof of stake and Ethereum development. Be sure to subscribe to Coindesk podcast for notifications and alerts when the new episodes
2: air. If you haven't already done so, then uh, subscribe to our newsletters. So I'm writing an update every other week on Ethereum 2 development, and you can find it at eth2.news. Or follow me on Twitter, and I'll let you know when the next one is out. And Christine and Will have a weekly newsletter called Valid Points. And you can get that and subscribe by going to coindesk.com.
3: Also, if you have any questions you would like answered on this podcast about ETH 2.0 development, Ethereum, you can connect with each of us on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes. Give us a shout out. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week for Mapping Out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be.
0: Goodbye. Bye, everyone. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine Kim-Will Foxley and Ben Edgington. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.